Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Thank you, Andy. Cheers. Thanks very much. Well, I'll only do a pirouette if it gets really boring, but I'll start off with the topic for which you came. And thanks for coming. I want to kick off with the classic story of the past of our food. And that is, for the last two million years, our, our, our homo, the Homo genus has been hunting. And then for a period of around 10,000 years, we've been farming. And that's a story I've grown up with in, in my archaeological life. It's a story you can... I'll, I'll be talking a bit about some of the um, uh, scientific methods in archaeology that have emerged over the last half century. But it's a story that you could assemble from all sorts of evidence. And it's a story that, that began when all archaeologists had was a bunch of stone tools. And still today, if you uh, assemble uh, all the stone tools from a museum and separate out the meat chopping tools and the arrowheads and the grinding stones and get a date for them, you kind of get this story that there's this long episode in which there was an emphasis on hunting, and then a much shorter episode when, there, uh, when there's an emphasis on a range of plants and things. And if we ask where that story uh, leads up to, uh, well, that, this is where it leads up to, the story's latest chapter today. We're now in a situation in the world where 58% of the world's grain production, and in addition, over 50% of the energy entering the human food chain is attributable to just three plants, uh, wheat, rice, and maize. Maize is sometimes called corn, but those three plants. And if you take those two thoughts together, the long-term story of human food and where we are at the present, those form two poles of how people think about what we should be eating. On the one hand, if one takes the historic uh, the, or the prehistoric story, there's a number of people arguing, well, if you look at biologically, if you look in evolutionary terms, uh, we've only been eating these grass seeds, which is what cereals are, for a very short period of time in evolutionary terms. And if you look in longer, on a long time scale, you can see what we should be eating and you can see what our bodies are adapted to eat. And that you'll be familiar with uh, uh, around what's sometimes called the paleo diet um, that gets us away from grains and says we should return to what our biology is about. And we're meat eaters with, with some fruits and leaves, but not these seeds. So that, that's one approach to thinking about our history and how it applies to present and future food. The other approach says, well, there are some people in this room, uh, not myself, I'm getting on a bit, but there are some people in this room that will be alive when there are nine billion people on this planet. And, and, and this argument says, we have no choice. We have to work with these three plants, uh, which we've been getting through breeding and science bigger and bigger, and get them even bigger. Everything else is, is a story on the sidelines. When you're, de when you're dealing with nine billion people, this is, this, this is what they're eating, and we need to boost them up. So you have those... Those two narratives, which are completely incompatible, and um, both of them uh, 
um, appeal to the past in different ways. One saying we've got to get back to the past, and the other one says we've got to progress uh, as we have in the last 10,000 years and keep scientifically and innovatively changing the ones in which we specialised. And um, it's two incompatible stories, which I thought it would be interesting to explore by revisiting um, the past in, 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 a, in a different way. So what I want to do is, is address two themes in this talk. First of all, I want to uh, look at what we actually know about the past and how, do, how we know it. And I'll give you some examples of the kind of work me and my group do and other people do. And then to ask how can we effectively draw upon that knowledge for the present and the future. And what I want to do is, is think critically uh, at that stage about what, what knowledge from the past we can use, and not for some sort of sentimental, nostalgic, we've got to get back to the past, or some rather um, idealistic thing that somehow the past was great and the, and the present isn't. But to, to think critically about how looking at the long term, how we should be using it to think about the past. And in both cases, I'll relate it to um, some of the work that I've been doing, just to, uh, and my group has been doing, I should say. So let's kick off with the, um, the first question of, of, of what do we know and how do we know it? And here's a picture of me when I, when I was more youthful on the right. Uh, and uh, with, I'll be mentioning some, as I say, as you know, archaeology's got quite scientific, but one of the most important, some of the most important ways of getting at food are very low tech and a major source of information uh, of past food involves uh, a plastic dustbin, a hose pipe, and a sieve. And for some reason or other, well, what, what, what I, this is, this, as I say, this is me some time ago. And what you can do with these very low-tech bits of kit is take an archaeological feature, and that's, that's a, a, a pit, a, a rubbish pit, an Iron Age rubbish pit that's been three-quarters excavated. And you can't see any um, plant foods in there. But if you mix the sediment with water, the charred food floats off, and you can collect it in the sieve, and look at it under a microscope, and you can see in the top left some pieces of charred cereal grain. Now, I don't know why carbon doesn't decay. It's a great energy source, and, and there's been bacteria that have tapped on every other energy source one can think of, but somehow or another, carbon doesn't decay, and so this stuff hangs around, and it can be the oldest charred piece of food I'll show you in this uh, lecture is 120,000 years old, so it just, it just stays there. So this sort of stuff is really great, and, um, and you can really... Um, those are, of, 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 um, are some fairly average uh, wheat grains, but I just thought I'd show you a selection. This isn't my data, this is one of a Polish colleague, Elena Marinova, and it's just a nice range of charred plants from the earliest European farmers. So this is about 8,000 years ago in Germany and Poland. And what uh, Elena has got there is uh, something like, amongst those are seven species of cereal, including down the bottom uh, some chaff of a wheat species that is no more, that is now extinct. 
um, and about six different legumes. And in addition, uh, if we take the, the, the second row from the bottom, uh, 12, 13, 14, and 15, that's uh, flax, uh, opium poppy, chickpea, and coriander. So it's kind of nice. It's, it's a really rich form of data. And from the 60s, when it was clear that with this low technology, you could get all these plant remains, it, there was a lot of research that could be done that didn't really challenge the old picture, but could go to the last 10,000 years of agriculture and say, we can really put some flesh on this and find out what plants and uh, what, uh, what things were being eaten in the record. And so between, uh, between like, the, the, well, particularly for the 70s and 80s, there was masses of, of detail being filled in about what plants were being cultivated. <clears throat> well, what, it, was, it was by about, um, it wasn't actually now I think about it, until about 15 years ago um, that I thought, well, this is all very well um, looking at plants when we know there's agriculture, but we need to go and look for plants where the story is the opposite, that everyone's hunters. And if, 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 if uh, I thought, if, if I want to really go to a site where they're really hunting in a sort of macho way, they're really big animals, what I need to do is go to somewhere where they were mammoth hunting. So what I, th I thought I'd do was go to a site where was, which was older than these sites and known for its mammoth hunting, and I went to the Czech Republic, <clears throat> this site that's 26,000 years old, uh, and, uh, um, and my Czech colleagues were very amenable to trying flotation with it. There you've got one of the, um, one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the masters of what's quaternary science in the Czech, Czech uh, Republic, Professor Grumek, and he's looking at those sediments and those sediments that have built up over the last 26,000 years. And simply by looking at those sediments with his naked eye, he can pick out a temperature curve by the slight differences in the colors of the sediment going up that sequence. He can see the story of the Ice Age, so he can go back through the last glaciation into the warm period before. And at the bottom of the warm period before, you can see by his feet, the sediments are quite dark, because that's a a, salt, a soil from the last um, interglacial. <clears throat> and on the right, you can see uh, some, of, uh, some of the group carefully and painstakingly um, uncovering mammoth bones, because these were sites where, where, where mammoths were being pulled down. So I said, OK, I want to go to this site, and I want to float it for plant remains, which was first seemed really weird, because these are mammoth sites. You know, People would look at mammoth bones. But we floated it, and we found some seeds and things. And among the things we found is, um, oh, sorry, a very ancient crumb. Now, <laughs> on the left, that's a millimeter scale. So this is a small back black crumb, uh, which is a millimetre scale. Uh, I, I, I don't know why I've used these fancy words, amorphous carbonised tissue. It's, it's a crumb, for heaven's sake. It's a burnt crumb. And uh, once I looked at it, there were some other, other, other seasons from the same time. The main thing is a small particle. And the key thing is you can say, well, if it's a millimetre across and it's burnt, how do I know it's a crumb? Well, the great thing about this burnt stuff is although it's lost all its chemistry, there's amazing detail at the cellular level. It, uh, uh, what we've got here is a close-up of that crumb. 
and you can see the interior, you can see the cells, and you can see the starch granules of the thing that was ground up to make that crumb. So, in as much as this crumb, we know, um, was from plants that are in the daisy family. There's a number of daisy relatives that have a starchy root, including chicory and salsify and a bunch of others. And what they were doing, they were clearly pulling up daisy roots, drying them out, making them in some kind of flour, or, or grinding them up when they were dry enough, mixing them with water, and then putting them in the oven, that, that's, or putting them in a fire. And that we can tell completely from just looking at the crumb. So you can see how exciting a very old crumb is. <coughs> and um, because of that, I've, um, I've had another wonderful uh, student, Cynthia Larby, who said, well, if we're looking for old crumbs, let's look for really old crumbs. And she, she went to South Africa, some really famous sites in South Africa, um, and, and these two crumbs are hers. There was a time, when I, when I was a younger archaeologist, a lot of people ask archaeologists, what's the most exciting thing you've ever found? And for a long time, it just so happened in 1974, I, when I was a working archaeologist, I did uncover um, a rather beautiful Anglo-Saxon gold and silver belt clasp. And so I'd say this, because I thought that's what the kind of thing people wanted. But the truth of the matter is, for some reason or other, it was kind of disingenuous, because I knew it took no skill to find that. I was just given that grave, get on with it, clean it up, and the belt class was in it. And, um, and also, I never really learned anything more about ourselves from it. It was just one of those finds. So it felt a very disingenuous answer. And the, and the answer I give now is disingenuous because Cynthia Larbia found it, my student found it, I didn't find it. But nonetheless, it feels more honest to say, yes, the most exciting thing we, the royal we, have found is the world's oldest crumb. And, uh, and so um, that's where it's, now I, I've put, um, I've put uh, just, to put, just for context, so the Dolny one on the left is at the same time as the world's oldest moldy clay objects, such as this really beautiful um, uh, sculpture of a woman, handheld size. The middle crumb from South Africa is more or less contemporary with the world's oldest art. And uh, this one on the right is older than any of that, um, but still um, uh, part of our, our species. So I, I, I also said, to, uh, if I'm really pushing the boat out, I can say, give, give, I can't believe that uh, um, people who make those figurines when they made the dough just went slap like that. I'm sure they made them into a nice uh, object. So now I'm, I'm, I, I rather speculatively say, this relates to the remains of the earliest artwork in the world, but that's a little bit dodgy. <coughs> but <coughs> so what you can see is, is key here, is the whole thing, whole idea that um, plant foods start with agriculture is, isn't really working. Clearly, the idea of using a starchy source and um, turning it into food is, is, is as old as our species. <coughs> And I just want to say something else about that site, that in the top left-hand corner, you've got a reconstruction of these mammoth hunters that, as well as bringing down enormous mammoths, 
were pulling up daisy roots and grinding them up and making into the dough. Those went on uh, to at least uh, 20,000 years ago. And you can see um, a series of sites in the black dots. All those black dots are mammoth hunting sites, 20 to 30,000 years old. Now, those mammoth hunters traveled um, a fair way in their lifetimes. They needed to, to, to follow the mammoth. And so, although we think of Europe as a large place, you could actually get from one side of the Europe to the other in a few weeks. Um, and if you went as far as the bottom right-hand corner, at the same time as the late mammoth hunters, and I, really, I feel that although most people wouldn't have done that, some people would have been making the journey, they'd have seen at the same time a completely different way of doing food. Now, this is a site called Ohalo on the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is 23,000 years old. And it's one of the sites that's produced one of the most wonderful sets of food gathering equipment from that time. And I've shown here a series of items that come up from that site. So on the left, you can see it's a, it's a site that is submerged sometimes by the fluctuating Sea of Gully. And it has fabulous um, plant remains. This is, uh, at the bottom here, is a great pip. There is some rushes used for flooring. This is a stem of wild wheat, two and a half times as old as agriculture. And this is, the, uh, 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 this is a fiber, uh, which we're pretty sure is, from, uh, is associated with netting, because there are fish boats on this site in quantity. And uh, so at this, that, that wanderer from the mammoth hunters, the mammoth hunters, Davy Root Pillars, in a few weeks could walk somewhere where people were gathering vast numbers of wild plant seeds and getting, putting nets in the water out of fish to get the fish out. And so um, not only is looking at plant foods as well as animal foods go way back, there's a lot of diversity in there. And to get an overview of that diversity, I want to, I'm not going to kind of um, go over the top with new methodology, but it's quite important to know that not everything is done with a bucket and a hose pipe and sieve. And over the course of the last 40 years or so, a number of other methods uh, have come in that are really helpful in terms of establishing what we ate in the past. And one of them is bone chemistry. When I say bone chemistry, it can, also, it can be any bodily part, including hair. Now, I've got some colleagues in the department at Cambridge who could go around this audience and just take hairs, and from the chemistry of those hairs, they could easily um, sort out who was vegan, uh, who was a burger enthusiastic, and, and who was in the middle. And as it happens, if you had a hair, they, they, uh, uh, they could also very easily see whether you ate at um, different things at Christmas and at Easter and the rest of the year. And so, uh, this is through um, a form of, for those of you who, who, are, who do know the, the terminology, they're stable isotopes of a series of key um, uh, elements, carbon, hydrogen, uh, oxygen, and nitrogen. But for those, for, for everyone else, it's, it's a chemical signature in the tissue that captures what you ate. We don't have a lot of uh, 
hair in the prehistoric record, but the bones and the teeth also capture that isotopic record. And so we can say some things in broad terms about the balance of the food web in the past by looking at those isotopes. So, well, just as context, in terms of deeper evolutionary history, the great apes, of which we are a number, if you look across the great apes, there's a lot of different things being eaten. The great apes don't hang together as one particular group. I've shown here uh, bonobos who eat mongogo nuts, fruits, they're very vegetarian, but they're incredibly closely related to the chimpanzees that hunt, amongst other things. So if you look at great apes generally, there isn't a singular pattern. There's a lot of diversity. Now, the thing that comes closest to uh, the paleo model is if you look at our genus, in other words, not just at, at Homo sapiens, but also at Neanderthals, Erectus, and these various other um, relatives. If you look at that whole genus through isotopic analysis of bones and teeth, Homo as a genus is higher up in the food chain than um, a number of other great apes. So for the genus, uh, meat-eating has a, a deep a recurrent uh, history. So in that way, uh, the traditional model uh, is broadly right. However, if you come to our own species, it returns again. If we, if we stick with the Homo sapiens and say, Let's dig deep down to Homo sapiens diet. You, you can't, as far, as far as I can see, find a singular ancestral way of eating. It's in the nature. One of the key things about Homo sapiens, we have this oversized brain that gets us into trouble all the time, as we know. But one of the things that oversized brain does, it means we can change our mind about what we eat. And you can see that right through the history of Homo sapiens. There isn't a singular ancient uh, way of eating, but... <clears throat> but a whole bunch of them. And we saw that in microcosm by looking at, uh, <clears throat> at uh, by contrasting Ohalo and uh, Dolny Vestonipsi. So what I want to do now is, if, if, we, if I summarize that, what one can say is that if you look at Homo sapiens, um, then there isn't a singular thing we've eaten. eaten. In fact, there's a phenomenal number of things we've eaten. And, and I put an estimate there. And that's not from archaeology, really. That's from ethnobotany. That's from, from anthropological records of what people eat around the world uh, to, today. There's in, in, in excess of 10,000 species that are named and routinely uh, ingested. Um, and amongst those, around 50 are easily recognized edible grasses. And just to remind you, what a cereal is, is it's a, it's a grass that the grains are eaten. And there's about 50 distinct species. And then in the present day story, as I mentioned earlier, over th uh, three, three of those species account for, for half of the total food. Uh, human food chain. So what I want to do for the rest of the talk is home in, you can imagine there's other talks I could give on the 10,000, but I want to home in on those 50 cereals and move to some other work our groups have done to unpack some of the history of those 50 cereals, see how they moved around, and then uh, move to 
what we might learn from it. Now, um, then there's the third method that comes into play in doing this. I've mentioned buckets and hosepipes and sieves and char grain, uh, bone chemistry and isotopes, and the third one is genetics. We only call it archaeogenetics because it's, it's genetics we're using to answer archaeological questions. It's just amazed everyone since the genome projects have been done how much information is in genetics, and it's amazed archaeologists how much historical information is in genetics. So whereas we once thought, before the genome project were underway, we, we once thought that if you, if you mapped a whole genome, it would be full of really useful genes doing useful things. And now we can see, you know, well, about 10% of the genes are doing something we can recognize. Uh, the rest of you are probably doing something, but there's a lot of kind of noise and junk in there. And noise and, and junk is great for getting fingerprints of, uh, of history in the past. So like many other fields within studies of the past, and uh, we've drawn on genetics as the third methodology to answer that problem. And, and you can see there are a couple of my team, Harriet Hunt and Di Lister, and they're, doing, they're looking at three forms of cereals for their genetics. One is the, um, these uh, archaeological grains. These are 4,000 years old from central China. Uh, these are historic specimens. They, they were gathered in the um, 19th or an early 20th century before there was a lot of reduction in diversity. And these are what are called land races. They're local varieties uh, from around the world. And this, one, this pot might be from uh, Azerbaijan, this one from Poland, this one from Russia. They're, they're, they've literally been taken from a small farm uh, somewhere there to get, the, to, to get the genetic diversity. And when the, the possibility of using genetics was, un, were, uh, was underway, uh, we thought we'd better try it out on a well-known story of agriculture. And so um, tr tried it out on uh, a story of agriculture about it spread across Europe. We, we've, we, we said that if there's anything in this genetics, we should be able to find the spread of agriculture across Europe. And in doing that, we did a massive survey of all the charred plant remain records uh, that had been got for Europe. And uh, so we found emma wheat and barley, which were spreading across Europe. In small quantities, we also found some of the minor cereals amongst the 50 cereals, including uh, a range of millets and a plant that isn't a real cereal, it's the wrong family, uh, but buckwheat. And these were just in small quantities in Europe, back in the Neolithic. And the thing that interested us about those is that those cereals um, botanically came from families we associated not from Europe, but from China. And so somehow or another, something was happening in terms of uh, early cereals moving around. And um, here's a whole bunch of, uh, of records of a Chinese minor cereal um, occurring in Neolithic Europe. So Harriet did her genetic analysis of, uh, of these uh, land races and so forth. And each of those circles represents a genetic signature 
from one of those flower pots in the location. And uh, if one actually lines up the similarity, you can actually see the spreads of Chinese millet across um, uh, uh, the old world way back in time. And in the heart of that is the area where uh, the millet seems to have come from. And um, so one of the things we did was we thought, right, well, we need to go there. We weren't expecting to have minor cereals from China in uh, these Neolithic um, deposits. And so we did a series of projects to go out to China and Mongolia, both to see the status of these, these uh, cereals and also to look at some of the archaeology of them. And um, I just want to talk very briefly about a couple of these places um, in, in Mongolia and in the inner Mongolian province of China. And in Mongolia, where some of these cereals had, had, had uh, come from, uh, we've had the advantage of a colleague who is an ethnic Mongolian so he could talk to elderly people. And we went to the places where we were expecting millet to be. Indeed, millet had been, uh, but like so much of the diversity of uh, crops in the past, it had shrunk in the 20th century. And it in particularly shrunk in, in this case, uh, in the period of, of Soviet collectivization, just um, as the same way as the big three crops elsewhere in the world uh, were overtaking as, as a result of collectivization. But um, Hurul Vata managed to um, uh, talk to uh, el elderly people who could remember from their childhood what, what uh, millet farming was like and to pull out some of the, the uh, farm implements, you can see, uh, and tell, us and, and tell uh, him about how they were used. And that was a very interesting study in itself. And I just wanted to uh, pick out one element from it. And that one element was when Hurlbata asked them about this millet, he said, is, is it a famine food or is it a fallback food? And their response was very interesting. This is a response of one elderly Mongolian. And he says, we are the people of the Hangai, a place where the lower mountains are clothed with trees. There are almost no famine times occasions in the Bulgarian readings. We have many types of plenty of fruits and all types of game animals. And that's that whole emphasis on diversity that, in, that one doesn't rely on a single plant, but the whole way of, of the whole strategy of uh, feeding was to have, um, be aware of the potential of a whole series of species that one can draw on at different times for different purposes. And also, if you could keep in your mind that ecological image of a place where the lower mountains are closed with trees, that's going to recur in the next two, uh, few slides, including this one, which is moving to Inner Mongolia. And you can see exactly the same locale. And the interesting place about this site in, in Inner Mongolia is it is where the world's oldest um, millet agriculture uh, uh, is, so around 8,000 years ago. Uh, it, you, um, millet, charred millet in this sort of quantity was turning up again at that break between the foothills um, and the mountains. <clears throat> uh, 
And um, just another comment, at the same time as doing the archaeology, we often talk to elderly farmers at the same time as doing the archaeology. And uh, this is my colleague, uh, Zhao Jijun, uh, who does much what I do, but based in Beijing, asking this uh, elderly Mongolian farmer whether this rather grotty millet was a weed or a wild plant or a domestic plant. And quite often, when you ask a question like that, you realize that you're applying very Western notions. And uh, the actual answer is that there's various forms of millet. And there's the millet, those are Mongolian words on the, on the left. There's the millet of the rain, and the millet of the blackbird, and the millets that's sown. And at different times, each of those um, uh, were consumed. And someone, the age of that farmer, has lived through the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, and so forth. So has had many occasions to uh, diversify their food web. And here's, um, again, my colleague Jimmy, who's found uh, a whole series of millets uh, in the past. And in addition, in the same way as I went to China, uh, because following a Chinese plant that was occurring in European prehistory, uh, Professor Zhao was finding a Western plant wheat down the bottom in prehistoric deposits in China. And so that started a very productive um, uh, uh, exploration in which we were exploring uh, things going in two directions. <coughs> now, once again, this chemistry of human bones became very interesting because we were able to look at a series of prehistoric cemeteries. This one is about uh, 4,000 4, years old. And look at the bone chemistry and tell whether they were eating uh, millet or wheat. And uh, just to give you a feel, what one can see there um, is that one can trace through the, the bone chemistry these crops moving around uh, the old world. And so by uh, four to five thousand years ago, you have a tricket, trickle of millet moving uh, westward, and then by uh, three thousand years ago, a whole bunch of millet in the west. So you can see this neighbour-to-neighbour -neighbor exchange. It's not a kind of great influx of uh, a new people or anything. It's farmers exchanging, and this has led to a, a project where what we can now see is that three and a half thousand years ago. The farmers of Eurasia were interconnected and Africa and exchanging crops and sharing crops and exchanging different varieties amongst the whole range of those, not just a small number of crops, but many, many different species of plant. <clears throat> and one of the things that, uh, if you look closely at this map, it's kind of hugging uh, those locations at which our Mongolian uh, informant was telling us. They're hugging uh, that um, boundary between the mountains and the plains where, um, where, the, where the foothills are clothed with trees. And you can particularly see that around the Himalayan uplift. You can see there that the movement of these crops in prehistory is... Um, is, is, is circling this up, uplift. The other thing I mentioned about this date is um, 
we're very familiar with the concept of the Silk Road. Now, the, the Silk Road is something of traders, and that goes back a long way, um, probably as early as, as two and a half thousand years uh, ago. But what I want to emphasize is these dates are three and a half thousand years ago for the culmination of this. So long before the merchants, in fact, what the merchants are doing is, is not blazing a trail. They're using uh, networks that have been established for centuries by farmers who are exchanging ideas, exchanging knowledge along a whole chain of, um, <coughs> of um, places. Well, you can imagine, because of this hugging of the foothills, we've also found some other farmers who are very interesting uh, um, in talking about how you farm these, these areas. And these are Mr. and Mrs. Zhu in Xinjiang province in West China. A wonderful couple and very um, informative. And they were telling us uh, how you farm a slope like this. And you can see there, again, the place where the forest closed the mountain base. You can see in the distance there a series of white dots, which are Kazakh, uh, mobile Kazakh nomadic tents. So today, this is all pasture. Um, but you can also, you also see uh, ridges of Bronze Age field systems. So those are 4, 3 to 4,000 year old field systems. And these are people who remembered how farming worked uh, before the Cultural Revolution. And we had this wonderful conversation about how you manage water in this landscape and, uh, and how you actually, uh, uh, and, and how in, in those conditions, the higher up you go, the more you have water security. They mentioned at one stage that in order to water their, their plots, they use various animals to build the channels. Sometimes they use uh, 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 horses, sometimes cows, sometimes goats. You think, why do you use goats to carry stones? And the reason you use goats to carry stones is going way up to the snow line and, and channeling water from where um, it's melting in the snow. So a lot of knowledge there <coughs> in the heads of very elderly people um, about um, uh, how you farm. And that relates to uh, a, a, um, another story of how if you combine these crops, if you combine wheat, uh, barley and wheat from the west and millets from the east, that combination allow people to go way, 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 way up in the uh, mountains by um, uh, about three and a half thousand years ago. And just moving forward then from those pictures to how, how this moved towards the present day, uh, what you have after that sharing of crops is you have society coming downhill um, to uh, the big valleys, uh, in the, largely in the, in the second millennium BC, to form the basis of what we call the great civilization. So you have, the, you have Mesopotamia here, the Indus there, and the central plains there. And each of those we know something about um, how they farmed, both, both from text and from archaeology. And what's clear is in that period, the diversity of crops was a really important part of um, their um, agriculture. And one of the key things that the ex these exotic crops, either the millets if you're in the West, 
or the wheats uh, if you're in the east. And in, in South Asia, in the Indus region, crops from all over the place, it allowed um, multi-cropping, which in turn allowed monuments and great civilizations. So both in the west uh, and in the east, this is a Bronze Age god of Chinese agriculture, uh, the basis of uh, Bronze Age agriculture is a mix of crops from different parts of Eurasia. So you have, um, in this case, this is a sorghum from Africa, millet from Asia, rice from South Asia, beans from all, all over, and wheat uh, from uh, the West. And so a whole mixing and diversification <coughs> of, um, of agriculture. Now, in terms of how that, what the pathway to the three grains was, essentially, in prehistory, what those patterns show is a contact over land in which the move in grains was towards greater diversity. And after Columbus, there was another exchange uh, which involved contacts over sea. And this is when the big three uh, featured massively. Wheat went into the New World, and uh, maize went into Africa and Asia, and uh, rice uh, went to Africa and the, and the New World. So a number of other crops moved as well. And the interesting thing about, and this is just a Chinese snapshot, after this period, in the nature of, of, of the commercial economy, there was a, 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 a widespread drive towards uh, monoculture and different monocultures in different places. And in the right times, those monocultures boomed, and in the wrong times, they busted. And that's one of the, one of the clear, clear features of um, the... Of the, of the big three, and uh, well, there's a few more here, uh, like the potatoes, that one way or another, I mean, masses have been written about each of these events, the, dust, the American Dust Bowl, contemporary maize in Africa, and potatoes in Ireland, but one, what one can see is the busts uh, in each of these cases <coughs> is uh, connected, is entangled with the shrinkage down to a small number of starchy crops. And just looking at um, uh, maize in Africa, which is, is the one that really connects uh, to a strong contemporary issue, essentially maize came out over to Africa initially from, from the 17th and 18th centuries as a super crop to work on the mines, the gold mines and then eventually the diamond mines. And it's very similar to the potato in Ireland, that it's a super crop that if you give the workers a small plot of land in which they've got to try and feed themselves, then one of these super crops uh, is the thing to do. Uh, somehow or another, um, by the 30s, it had morphed into Africa's major cash crop. And by, uh, from 2010, at the format of forefront of the climate change agenda and entangled in a whole series of crop failures in Africa. And the interesting thing is what happens in crop failures, one of the mitigations that's possible is that at the same time as the maize crop is failing, uh, the women farmers are still cultivating these forgotten millets in their, um, 
in, the, in gardens and so forth. And not much work's been done on them, but you can see in the kind of responses that are going on within that boom-bust cycle of the main crops, there's a lot of local uh, response in relation to uh, deep knowledge of diversity of crops. And only just recently, um, uh, there are now projects exploring how one can bring scientific um, augmentation to, um, to looking at these crops. So in terms of a kind of theme that recurs in looking at the past, um, on the one hand, that uh, initial story of, of, of uh, plants being recent and uh, hunting being the, the, the long-term thing, that doesn't kind of work. A diversity of species, most of which are plants, are a deep part of our evolutionary history. And I mentioned 10,000, but I focus really on um, uh, the, the cereals, and here's just a range of different cereals. When we started doing this work, not only were wheat, rice, and maize the ones that dominated the food chain, they also dominated the, the scientific research agenda, such that an awful lot of these plants on the um, list, there, there hadn't at that point been done any scientific work on them. <clears throat> That's kind of changing um, at the moment. But I just wanted to, to pick up, return to China, and mention some of these work, because this is a part of China, uh, part of the world, where the millets were still being cultivated. And this was uh, uh, in an area of Inner Mongolia. And I remember when we wanted to find some millet farmers back about 15 years ago, the kind of conversation you'd have is, well, I think Grandpa or his brother still plants millet. Why don't you go out there? And there was, although you can see this is a, well, this is, this is a pretty fine field, nonetheless, it was an old person's um, crop. Over the last 10 years, um, that's turned around, and two things have happened. On the one hand, the possibilities of using scientific approaches to the great diversity of cereals has, have grown, and that's a scientific advance. It's the startup um, costs are cheaper um, uh, for a new crop. So scientific possibilities have grown, but also the attitude of the market has grown, and now every plot of land, this is in the same area, and you can see us talking to a millet farmer there, in the same area, every plot that can be grown uh, to millet is grown to millet, and it's, it's developed within, if you like, a health-conscious food market, and it's thriving uh, um, uh, in that context. And the area has been, uh, uh, by the Food and Agricultural Organization, uh, specified as a globally important agricultural heritage system. And that's one of the things we're trying to do within the Cambridge Global Food Security Initiative to try and explore um, those issues of diversity, a diversity of food plants in relation to how knowledge from the past can be brought into play into problems of the present. And at that point, I'll stop and thank you very much for listening. So, uh, I'm happy to take questions in the last te 10 minutes, I think we have. Um, hello, 
mentioned um, in uh, Mongolia that, that one of the uh, respondents you spoke to, one of the farmers, said that we didn't have problems with famine, mm. but the areas that you were pinpointing had forests, had trees yeah. up the slopes. How, and, and knowing about um, agricultural horticulture and so on, uh, the trees, how does work, that work now? That's a really interesting question. Uh, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right to make the point that the options um, for the farmers in their childhood were different for the very reasons you say. I, uh, what I would say from talking to the second farmers in, um, in Chufung, who did experience the various famines of, of Maoist China, um, I would say the, the, the attitudes were resonant, but with a different range of ecological resources. And so um, uh, I remember, and, and <laughs> another thing I remember um, about asking those questions, you could tell we were forever asking these questions which were slightly irrelevant, like is it wild or, or cultivated? And there's something I've noticed that um, decent people do when a stupid uh, European academic asks stupid questions. They pretend they've asked a sensible question <laughs> and answer that instead. And the, and the sensible question I should have, well, the two questions they answered is what does it taste like and when was the last time I had to eat it? <laughs> and their whole way of classifying, um, and, and, and so that I would say is what's uh, in common. So you're absolutely right that that ecosystem lent to certain answers to those questions. What I would contend is the same questions were being addressed to whatever was growing and just answered opportunistically in a different way. <laughs> Talk a little bit about how the diversity, how, diver how the increase in diversity of plants translate into um, yields and production for, to meet the demands of nine billion people who are going to be in the world. Yeah, so um, that, ans that answer is variable. So amongst those other 50, um, there's quite a lot of variety. There are some that are nutritionally great, but physiologically you can't imagine ever... Um, competing. Uh, there are others, such as the principal minutes, we don't know the answer because the whole point about re what wheat, rice, and maize is they, you know, they have 150 years of pushing, which the others haven't. And um, uh, because of the way genetics is working, we'll, the answer to that question will change a bit. Um, but there's another, there's another, if I could follow on from your interesting question, I mean, another thing that um, I've noticed divides the response to this is. Two ways, two, and this recurs a number of things about food security. Two questions you can ask is one, what did nine billion need, and how does that translate into calories? And there's another question you ask is, is who is hungry? Why are you hungry, and, and how can we mitigate that? And as you can tell, those pathways goes in different ways. So I mean, it's quite interesting that one of the things about the, uh, although I haven't talked about it, one of the things that I've learned myself from the food security initiative is is, is uh, how things like wastage can be mitigated and create that dynamic. So there's a lot of debate about, um, uh, about how to relate it, but the honest answer is, for some of the, to your original question, for some of those crops, they don't look physiologically potential, um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, but for others, um, uh, we don't know. 
And the other thing I would say is probably, I mean, wheat, rice, and maize are going to be in the, in the story, but it's a bit like a financial portfolio. At the moment, it's a, it's a bit too far over to you know, the stock market, and there should be some, <laughs> some safer things in there. You know what I mean? Which is kind of like how the minute's working. Thank you. We, we know that uh, most of the world's food supply is dominated by a few large multinational companies. Yep. Is, are there ways that the knowledge that you and groups like you are creating are feeding into these multinationals? Uh, that's a, yes, indeed. I mean, also, as you can imagine, uh, we, we work a bit, not so much with the multinationals direct, but, but with um, food development companies that are very much... Um, connected with them. And, and that, that relates to a, a series of, of separate issues which are really important and about, uh, they're actually about ownership and intellectual property because um, uh, one of the, I, I'll be honest, we, we, we've taken some money from Unilever uh, to help with our research and because of the Monsanto experience, uh, we drafted a contract whereby uh, we, we, a condition of taking their money is they couldn't alienate the intellectual property from the farmers you've seen on screen. And interestingly enough, Unilever were happy with that. And so, to their credit, they've signed up on that. So although they're putting money in, in relation to some of my students working on some of those millets, it's part of the contractual arrangement is that uh, it's not on the basis of alienating the intellectual property. So it's a, kind of, it's a very interesting question, and I've just taken a small stab at it, <laughs> but I hope that's helpful. Lectins. I understand scientists are saying that all plants have their own individual lectins, and that humanity, who grew up in the East, became used to those lectins, which are toxic to humans, mm -hmm. whereas those in the West, Europeans who move to the West, tend to have trouble with the lectins in corn and peanuts, for yep. instance. Do you want to comment, please? Well, the, there's, there's, that's, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, if I can broaden that out, what one's, to make a, a, a kind of, um, a, to contrast plants and animals, I mean, Animals protect themselves by fighting or running away, and plants protect themselves with toxins. And I just, the reason I wanted to put that in context is that is, is your very interesting question is part of a larger issue that um, the plants normally have some toxins rather to stop uh, them being eaten. And so there's a long story of, of uh, as you say, how, you, how the human body responds to, uh, to these. And... Uh, it, it's an interesting thing about that is, is that relates to the history of plant knowledge. One thing you can see is that something happened when uh, humans moved, and this is earlier than what I'm talking about, when humans moved across the Bering Straits into the old world, new, into the new world. By the time they were in the new world, they had a range of strategies for dealing with very dangerous families they didn't have in the old world. So... Your question is so interesting, I really need about an hour to answer it, but, but one, of the things, uh, one of the things I would say is in the old world, there's a lot of um, conservative knowledge about safety and so forth, 
Whereas in the new world, the ethnobotany is much more adventurous. It's, it's, it's a kind of a ho ho hovering around your question. But it's, it's a very interesting point because toxins is a really important part of eating any plants and has been for hundreds of thousand years. I've read two conflicting statements. One stay, saying that the original three weeks, basic weeks, were ever einkorn spelt. And if we had stayed with these, there would have been the gluten allergy problems there are now. I've read another one that says it isn't so. Who's correct? Um, both are, to a question of degree. <laughs> um, wheat, wheats have gluten in them, but some have more than others. Um, and that's, that underpins... See, the three wheats you mentioned are not bread, uh, a bread wheat. If you really want to avoid gluten, it's worth remembering there are 50, 50 other species of cereal. And if one moves around them, one has a much better bet. So they both are at different levels of, of, of degree. But you'll get a fair bit of gluten in any of those wheats. Um, you mentioned on one of the slides Vavilov, who earlier yep. went around in Asia and tracked the sources and the migration of crops uh, with other methods. Yep. How similar were your findings with his findings? Um, that I'm a great admirer of Vavilov, but if you look at the maps of Vavilov, you can see that his problem, his problem was neither the East nor the West trusted him. And I mean that seriously. I mean, he died... Vavilov is this great father of plant genetics who um, uh, died in, a, in an archipelago. He was, um, he was the hitman for one of uh, Stalin's famines, and, and, or, or the you know, hitman, the person who's blamed for one of Stalin's famines, and, and he died in... Uh, uh, he, he died there. So his methods... He was absolutely brilliant in that, but to give an example, if uh, the Fertile Crescent, which we know is very important in agriculture, he, he simply couldn't get to. So he, had, he could get to Ethiopia, so he has a lot of good data from Ethiopia, but there are many places that are quite key that for, for, for political reasons um, he, he couldn't get to. I think he's absolutely the foundation of plant genetics, and um, we had the privilege of working together with the Vavilov Institute, some of whom were old enough to remember uh, uh, him and if I may uh, tell a story, which is which is which is uh, quite important to me, we we looked at some land races. Some of those land races only existed because um, during the siege of Leningrad, uh, when everything was getting eaten, um, a series of curators of the Vavilov Institute uh, lost their lives because they starved to death rather than eating some of these rare disappearing cereals. And you can imagine how small I felt. Uh, working with the progeny of those cereals to uh, explore those stories. So a bit of a rambling answer, but the principles are all there. But, he, but, but, but fortunately, I don't have the constraints that that admirable man had and his team to um, look at those plants. Have you found any evidence of other plants travelling for other purposes apart from eating? Yeah, now, that, um, the, one of the, uh, there's a, the plants that are easiest to, um, to work, as you can tell from the, the data, there's some things that are easiest to look at. If, if there's a seed involved, then it can get burnt and we can find it. And um, certainly, I've already, uh, well, well, to cut long story short, cannabis is quite interesting. 
and, and cannabis is essentially <laughs> Central Asian, and that moves around um, uh, very early. And um, it does, it do, uh, and then at a, well, it, it is eating, but at, at a stage not long after that, a number of the fruit crops uh, move around. I, I mean, your question is about not eating, but, uh, but so apple, for example, is one that moves along that route um, pretty early. Um, uh, there, there isn't, um, there isn't, I was just thinking about opium poppy, which I showed the, um, the slide, and that doesn't really have the same pattern as cannabis um, does. And so I, I think the psychoactive plants are the ones that are interesting to look at. Yeah. There's one there. Hi there. I wanted to go back to your fantastic 120,000-year-old crumb. Amazing. Um, and um, you mentioned that it was an example of showing that we were using plant foods, grinding up starchy plant foods, long before agriculture, um, our species specifically. And I wondered how you knew it was our species and not Homo erectus or a another the, species. Absolutely. Um, now, I, what I will tell you is what the primary evidence is. Um, and the prime, well, what, what, what we're looking there's two ways you can look at our species. One is through the bones, and one is through this concept of modernity, which is a strange thing that we talk about. But in a, in, in a nutshell, um, the um, anatomically modern humans is, is a set of humans who, through their artifacts, uh, 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 display a potential to have a sequential pla plan into the near future. And that's a, and in other words, it's, uh, they can do arrowheads, cooking and fires, and so forth. And the direct correlation is with archaeological evidence of modernity. So it's the other stuff you found around it. Exactly. And when we were looking for these sites, uh, we were saying uh, there, there, there are certain patterns you know, of this sort of stone tool and this sort of fireplace. We said, we've got to go to a site there and, and look at those. That's where, how we went. Um, and so I think your perceptive question indicates there may still be a lot of surprises about the genetics of the human bones should we find bones that are directly related to the crumbs. At the moment, those crumbs are directly related to haars that are directly related to stone tools and stuff. And then there's a conjectural argument with how this fits in to the human bones, which is generally rarer and quite often in different contexts. But as we know, a lot of surprises um, around the taxonomy. But those elements of modernity, because to a great extent, grinding and cooking is, is that, it's a bit like making a bow and arrow. It's planning ahead and so forth. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers.